We're going to be talking about Ephesians chapter 4, the unity factor. And uh, what a great passage. Pastor Scott's been taking us through the book of Ephesians. We're in the series called Unshakable Identity. And it seems like, why do some churches, they just seem to get along and there's just no problems. And other churches are always constantly blowing themselves up. I mean, there's just always factions and turmoil. And this passage will really address the fact, what can we do to protect the unity of the church? I'll say this more than once. We don't manufacture unity. We maintain unity, and I'll explain that as we go today. I'd love to say that all the churches I've served in, it's just been clear sailing. But I remember the first church that had a church problem that I was involved in was my home church in West Covina, California. And uh, my senior year of college, our church went through a horrific split. In fact, it was the church in the San Gabriel Valley back in the day. And there was a disagreement between the senior pastor and the staff, and it just divided the church. And this church of a couple of thousand today runs about 150 people. It's never recovered. And so this is not a message from a textbook for me, uh, because I've been ministering almost 39 years. And, and unfortunately, I've just seen a bunch of church junk. And maybe today some of you are in this church because you've come through or from a church that just went through a lot of junk and you were done with the drama. You're just, man, that wasn't what you want to be a part of. And in fact, you're not alone today. If in any of your church experience, you went through a church that kind of had a division, raise your hands because I think you'll see there's a bunch of you that have probably been through something like that. Now, if you haven't, that's fantastic. Uh, it's wonderful. I, um, I know that uh, I thought, you know, the ultimate church to go to would, that would not have any church splits or problems Go to a Quaker church, right? I was on staff at a Friends Church in Yorba Linda for a number of years, and they're Quakers. Now, if you know anything about their theology, they don't, they're not so sure about the whole baptism thing and communion thing, and the third part of their theology is they're pacifists. So if a church is supposed to get along, it should be the pacifists, should it not? Should it not be the Quakers? And I went back in our history as I was looking at that, it actually had one of the most horrific church splits in the 70s, and out of that church split, a guy by the name of John Wimber started the Vineyard Movement at a little Quaker church in Yorba Linda. And so I said, oh, if there's no hope for the Quakers, what can we do, Lord? And then we get to Ephesians chapter 4, because Paul says there is unity, and there is a way to recognize it and see it developed and maintained in the church. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would teach us this morning from your word. Don't let the messenger confuse the message. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, thinking about the context, there are six chapters in the book of Ephesians. Chapters 1 through 3 kind of lay out our identity in Christ. It's all about who we are in Christ. And now he's going to go from the doctrine to the duty from the character of who we are to our conduct, from the principles to the practice, from uh, God's accomplishments to our assignments. And so this is an interesting section because he starts with therefore, and you know there's a shift in thinking as he goes from more the theoretical and the doctrinal to now this is how you're going to live. And so that's where we pick it up today. And after three chapters of discussing who Christ is and how that affects your lives theologically. Now he's going to turn the, uh, the table and turn the corner to here are the practices that we should practice. And it is not by coincidence the very first thing he wants to address in the church 
when it comes to character, uh, from character to conduct is, hey, how do we get along with one another? How is unity maintained in the church? So let's look at it. Verse 1, the call to unity. And it's a walk that's worthy. Look at it. It says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so in these first three uh, verses, he's going to talk about how you maintain unity. But he starts with this very subtle reminder that this call to unity starts for him where? Where is he? He's a what? He's a prisoner. He's in a jail cell. Uh, and he's reminding his readers very subtly that if you're going to follow Christ, it's going to cost you something. Most of us don't like that idea that following Jesus may cost us something. But interesting, is he a prisoner of Rome? How, what's the modifier? He's a prisoner of who? Christ Jesus. So he sees that no matter what happens in life, that ultimately he serves at the pleasure of the of sovereign God. I think that's a good reminder for all of us because some of us feel like at times we're a prisoner of our own circumstances. Uh, last hour I had a very good friend who's just spent 18 months in prison. It was a very long-term attender here at this church and just got out of jail. And he knows what it means to be a prisoner. He has no life. He had no control over his schedule. Nothing. And uh, I gave him kudos. for. He's been out of jail three days and he showed up here and wanted to worship with us this morning. And so we've reminded and we've talked and we've prayed and I've seen him in prison. I've seen him in a halfway house. And we've talked about ultimately God has a bigger picture even though as he self-admits he just has messed up his life. Paul saw a bigger picture. He's a prisoner of God. Now the call is such that it changed the way we think, how we decide, how we view life. And he says that call is a worthy call. If we're going to maintain unity in the body, it's a worthy call. And that word worthy is a scale. It's like measuring a balance. And on one side is your character and your beliefs. The other side is your conduct. Jesus Christ makes a difference in your life. And so your life and your lips have to match up, right? They have to match up. And that calling, it's a heavenly calling, Hebrews 3.1. Therefore, holy brothers... You who have shared a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. And then it's a holy calling, according to 2 Timothy 1.9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. So it starts with a call to unity, and then we see the characteristics of unity. Now... Because we can't manufacture it, what does a unified church look like? Now, I could just say, look up ABF in the dictionary, because we are living the dream here, friends. This is awesome, what we get to experience here. And if your church experience in the past maybe hasn't included such peacefulness, then welcome. Because this is something that God is doing here. This is something that we didn't manufacture, didn't? Not Scott, not me, not our elders. God is the one who has chosen to, to put this all together. Now, one of the things that, uh, that we realize is that when we have that kind of unity, someone might ask, well, is there things to promote that? You know, we have healthy diets and we should eat these green meaty vegetables and watch our red meat intake and all that. But healthy in the church I think there are five things, and it comes right from the text. Some of you give me a bad time about, oh, he's going to find a way to say this with five Ds or five Ps or 
four R's. It's right from the text here, and you're going you're gonna to fill in the blanks with me on the characteristics of this unity. And quite frankly, I want you to understand that we can apply this corporately, but I think it has a lot to say about what happens interpersonally as well. There, there's application on both fronts. It happens in your marriage. It happens in your church. It happens in the workplace. And if these five things are a part of your life, there will be peace. There will be unity in your life, Lord willing. And so let's look at those five things. And obviously, the opposite of these five things are unity killers, right? And it will destroy unity. So the first one comes from verse 2. It says, with all what? Humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with another in love. So the first one is humility. And obviously, the opposite of that is pride. Now, in doing a little research, do you know that the Greeks and the Romans didn't even have a word for this in their language. That was such a, like, what? Humility? In fact, Paul invents the word in Koine Greek uh, for this idea, humility. So this is not an admired thing from our culture. Um, Now, what is God's view of humility? Let me give you just a few verses. You can just write the verses down, and uh, we can see it here. Proverbs 15, 33, before honor comes humility. Just write the references. Proverbs 22, 4, the reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Uh, Proverbs 22, 27, 2, let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. Now, who is probably someone in the New Testament that's pretty humble? I think we all admit that the answer is Jesus. Take my yoke upon you. I am gentle and humble of heart, Mark eleven twenty nine. 29. He comes to serve says, according to Mark 10, verse 45. And what's the ultimate example of that humility? What does he do with his disciples before he goes to the cross? He washes their feet, John 13. So we see this example of humility. John the Baptist was humble. He said, I must what? Decrease, so he must increase. Paul said he was the foremost of all sinners in 1 Timothy. Peter looks at himself in Christ and says, hey, depart from me. I'm a sinful man, Luke 5, 8. So there's multiple examples of people who are humble in the Scriptures. And so the question is, how do you develop that? Because it's not like you write the book on it, like, I'm, I'm a humble guy. Let me tell you my book on how I did it. It's five steps to humility. No, it's H-U-M-I-L, you know. There's no acrostic for humility. But I can tell you what's the opposite of humility. What is it? It's pride, Right? Think about what Satan does to, try to destroy unity by prideful behavior in a church. The five I wills of Satan in Isaiah 14. What did Satan say? He said, I will what? I will send the most high. I will, I will, I will. It's his agenda, my agenda. It's self-promotion. So pride is the opposite of humility. Who's the most humble person you know? Don't say it out loud. But I, I know that I, there's a few people in my mind that I think, man, that's someone who's genuinely humble. Let me give you a little clue. Someone who's humble tends to ask questions, and they tend to ask you the questions. It's amazing when you're around someone who's humble, and you, wake, you, you realize you've gotten 30 minutes into this conversation, and they've asked all the questions. I want to be that kind of guy. I want to be the person who's other-focused, not me-focused. Secondly, he says, gentleness is the next ingredient in the crock pot of unity. Gentleness. Now, it's, some of your translation says the word what? Meekness, right? Gentleness or meekness. And we think 
Meekness means weakness, and literally the Greek word is strength under control, like a horse that's being harnessed, uh, a, a powerful engine. If, if Scott was preaching this, he'd talk about a car and the engine and the horsepower and all that stuff. i talk about horses, mainly mules, because uh, I'm stubborn. And so it's this idea of gentleness, mild-spiritedness. But, you know, we make fun of gentle people. We shouldn't, but even we joke about it, right? No offense, but... You know, uh, up, J. Upton Dixon wrote this, this fun-loving book called Cower Power. He also found a group of submissive people. It was called Doormats. That stands for Dependent Organization of Really Meek and Timid Souls, um, if there are no objections. Um, and so their motto is, the meek shall inherit the earth, if, if that's okay with everybody. Um, and their symbol was the yellow traffic light. Now... Um, <laughs> We say that kind of tongue-in-cheek, but we kind of think, like, if you're kind of meek, you're kind of weak, you're kind of milk toast, you don't have a spine, and yet we see just the opposite of that, right? The meek person is the one who's ultimately the most self-aware person in the room. In fact, Romans 12.3 says, don't think too highly of yourself than you ought to think, right? You have to think appropriately to the context, uh, giving honor instead to others instead of self-promotion. Uh, giving credit and seeking instead of seeking the limelight. Now, I think this whole gentleness thing is something my uh, two-and-a-half-year-old grandson is learning with his seven-month-old baby sister. Um, let's just say that uh, she's been in protective custody for several months now from Rhett. And then, uh, but Rhett's learning to, to be more gentle with her, right? More gentle. But it's awesome. I just spent two days uh, with my grandkids. We do a little thing every year for our, our married kids. We say, we're going to watch the kids for two days so you can get away to celebrate your anniversary. We'll take the kids and you go enjoy. And so we did that. How many grandparents kind of do that, kind of watch the grandkids? Yeah, you've done it. So uh, I, this whole gentleness thing is very interesting in the dynamics of a four-and-a-half-year-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old, Right? Because uh, the way you survive is you get those two out of the house. Cheryl takes the baby, and I take them for what seemed days at the park, but it was like two and a half hours. And um, there's a pecking order of authority on a playground. Now, this is it's a sociology study that we should do more often of because it's when they're just the two of them, here's the kind of overriding theme when it re- re- relates to humility and gentleness. The two-and-a-half-year-old, I know, can't say it, but he's saying this to the, Finney, the oldest one. You are not the boss of me. Uh, that's pretty much it. You know, it's like, is he like... And so we're teaching Phineas that if you ask questions, it works better than making demands and edicts. But something that trumps all of that is a bigger kid on the playground. And it was amazing to watch a seven-year-old rule the playground in a way that the four-and-a-half-year-old and two-and-a-half-year-old were just like lemmings going off the cliff, you know? Uh, in fact, so much so like, really? Should he really be climbing like that, hanging from 25 feet? Well, it was probably 12 but, or maybe two, but it seemed big. And, um, but they all figured it out, right? Because uh, they, there was a gentleness. In fact, I, it was so cute. The older the kids are, the more they get the importance of taking care of the little ones on the playground. It was, a, it was wonderful. And so I was reminded of this guy who said what the clubhouse rules should be. If you have the proper view of yourself, uh, the kids have it, right? They said, no one act big, rule number one. Rule number two, nobody act small. And rule number three, Everybody act medium. That's this idea of a proper self-awareness. And so um, this idea of gentleness, I I know that David 
showed great strength under control when he didn't take out Saul in the, in the caves in En Gedi. Uh, when Shimei is throwing insults at, uh, insults at David, he doesn't strike back. And so this strength under control is not weakness. Uh, I'm reminded of the story uh, of Jay Kessler wrote <clears throat> about uh, a time when an African student came to the to Taylor University and was going to be enrolling in the fall, and they took him on the tour of the campus and showed him everything. And he asked if there was any uh, questions he had, and the young man said, if there, uh, he, the president asking us, says, hey, where would you like to live on campus? What room? What dorm? And the young man said, if there is a room that no one wants, give me that room. Give that room to me. Jay says with tears in his eyes that he had never had any student ever say, give me the room that no one else wants on this president's tour. And as I thought about that, what is that like in a church? Let me just give you some ideas. If there's a room that no one wants, give me that room. Or maybe if there's a kid that no one wants to eat lunch with, I'll eat with that kid. Or there's a piece of toast that burnt, I'll take that piece. There's a parking space that's far from the church, I'll park in that space. If there's a service time that's less convenient for people, I'll worship at that service. If there's a hardship someone has to endure, I'll take on that hardship. If there's a sacrifice someone needs to make, I'll make that sacrifice. Maybe that begins to get at this idea of gentleness. We know that Matthew 5 says in the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek or the gentle because they're going to inherit the earth. And I believe without unpacking this fully, that that reward, that inheriting earth, is a direct result of delayed gratification. And when you are gentle, when everything in your fiber wants to lash out at somebody else, uh, this is one of those things where God says you need to think about how that plays out in your life. Gentleness is also one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and yet so often <clears throat> that's something that is so hard for us to develop in our own lives, isn't it? Moses was described as a gentle or meek person in Numbers 12.3. In fact, he was, says he was more meek than any man who was on the face of the earth. But when we are gentle with one another, it's like oil in an engine. It just makes everything run. Now, for some of us, we're not so gentle. We're truth speakers. And we'll get to those of you who say, yeah, yeah, have all this gentleness and patience and humility. What about what you got to stand for stuff? Just hang on. We'll get to the, the stuff you stand for in just a moment. Third one is patience or long-suffering. Obviously, impatience is on the opposite side of that. Maybe the one of this list that's the hardest for me to personally apply. Um, and just so I can, like, throw us all under the bus together at the same time, let's just vote by raising our hands. How many patience, even though it's one of the fruit of the Spirit, maybe patience isn't one of your most prized character possessions? Would you just raise it? Just We're all the impatient people. Just raise your hand. Yeah, thank you. All right. So some of us, that my wife is so patient. That's just maddening she's so patient. Um, but this idea that God says there's things you got to be in His waiting room. Abraham, let's think about it. How long does he wait to have that kid, Isaac? A hundred years, all right? That kind of puts our waiting in line pretty much in perspective. Noah, how long does he wait for the flood to come? How long is he working on building the ark? A hundred and twenty years. Now, that's some long suffering. That's some patience. I mean, you poor Cub fans had to wait a hundred and nine years. 
Yeah, just wait till the Dodgers. So 28. By the way, Dodger fans, great comeback last night. Back to back to back. Woo, good night. Um, for those of you who hate baseball, don't care. Just talk to Lindsay. She'll fill you in. All right. So this idea of patience, Paul's in prison, waiting patiently. He never asked God to take away the prison term. He asked him to take away the thorn in his flesh, but he patiently uh, served where God placed him. Some of you are dealing with something that, that involves unbelievable patience. I mentioned it last hour because my wife's in the middle of this. Some of you are caring for an aging spouse, a sick, someone who's sick, or an aging parent. It's, it's, it just wears you out. Leslie's in the middle of that with Johnny right now. My wife's in the middle of that caring for her, her father over who's in assisted living. And I look at you, and most people don't know the exhaustion you face week in and week out caring for someone who's dying and will never recover. And it is only in the crucible of this patience dilemma that you live that God speaks you in that quiet, solemn, solitary place. And I want to tell you, in the body of Christ, there has to be room for you to involve others in that painful journey with you. Don't live it alone. Don't go it alone. Tell someone. Let them in on that journey with you. And so, sometimes it's in those times that we learn patience. Um, Sometimes we learn patience by giving instead of taking, by living in such a way that we're not demanding to be seen or heard. I, I wrote this because I was thinking about, it is not my nature to want to sit or wait or be in line. I am driving somewhere. I spent six hours on the road this weekend, three uh, down to San Diego, three back. And it really bothered me when someone was going faster than me in that lane. I, I need to go around him and get back in the front of that line. I just want to get there, right? And so I wrote this. We are the most microwaved, want it now, snap our fingers, get out of my way, hurry up, instant gratification, don't make me wait, impatient, self-absorbed, front of the line, caffeinated adrenaline junkies on the face of the planet. And that may be a description of your life. And so often we just want it now. Interesting enough, Jesus moved fast but he was never in a hurry. He got a lot done, but he was never in a hurry. That's why when someone tugs at his, his robe, he says, who touched me? When people are clamoring for his attention, he takes pause and listens. When the disciple says, let's get out of her, he says, no, I'm not done yet. And so I want to suggest that the crock pot of patience involves solitude, Waiting, meditation, journaling. You know, the only time you can have a quiet time, in my opinion, if you have kids under the age of four, is somewhere between five and six in the morning. Uh, and those of you sleep-deprived moms, I get it. So yesterday morning, it was so awesome. They were not up. It was six o'clock in the morning. I'm sitting with my cup of coffee, and I'm kind of reviewing my notes, and I'm journaling something that was really heavy on my heart. 
And the thing I was journaling about has no solution. There's no quick fix to it. But something was better in my soul because I didn't rush that time. I didn't try to make it, solve it in 57 minutes. This isn't a TV show that we solve the crime on Blue Bloods every Friday night in 42 minutes. It takes patience. So if patience is the attitude in this period, then loving tolerance, number four, is the action. Fourth one, loving tolerance, not intolerance. 1 Peter 4.8 says this, love covers a multitude of sins. And so often there is this selfish kind of love. I'll, I'll, I'll be tolerant of you as long as you agree with me, do what I want, when I want it, etc., etc. Um, have you, any of you ever had a cranky neighbor? Just raise your hand. Anybody ever had a cranky neighbor? This is for us who have cranky neighbors where it says we need to be lovingly tolerant of them. I've had pretty good neighbors most of my life, but if you've ever had a cranky neighbor, you know what we're talking about here because it is so hard to love them. Nothing is ever good enough. Your trash cans are always in the way. You didn't get your grass cut soon enough. Whatever, there's something about it. And so loving tolerance is extending grace when someone doesn't deserve it. It's forgiving instead of holding a grudge. It's believing the best and not assuming the worst. Loving tolerance is not something that I I like to talk about because sometimes I'm just not that patient and I'm certainly not that tolerant. It's very convicting. I'm married to a wife that's both of those things. And I thought a long time uh, this week about what I was going to share this next illustration. I don't do it with any great desire, but it's killing me because of something I'm seeing very close in my life where loving tolerance is just not being practiced. A year ago, I did my son's wedding. First year is supposed to be hard, but first year shouldn't be when you get divorced. The first year shouldn't be so much tension and anger and that you're talking about a separation. The people aren't, the voice lawyers aren't being called. And I can tell you that in this case, if just this one thing was practiced, just this, loving tolerance, the two of them would not be in that desperate place. See, I talk about this being something we do on a macro level in a church, but these four things also apply to a marriage that's coming apart when there isn't humility and gentleness and patience and especially loving tolerance. So they're supposed to leave and cleave and you can't interfere. And even though you're the dad and you're the pastor and they don't talk to him, he won't talk to anybody else, go to counseling. I can't. I don't want to. You've got to go to counseling. Please go to counseling. And so Friday night I called one of the elders at my former church that they attend and I asked John and Cindy, I need you to step in, guys. I can't do it. I can't take sides. I don't know where the truth lies, but would you step in? For two hours, they counseled and held hands and tears just flew. 
and I think they got a 10% chance. No, that's too far gone. I do believe in miracles. I do believe that God is sovereign. I do believe God can heal. But I am telling you, friends, if there's not humility and gentleness and patience and loving tolerance, you can destroy your own marriage. I thought they would be living in a separate place by today. And through God's miracle through this wonderful couple, they both begin to see separate counselors tomorrow and a third counselor together. And this couple is willing to mentor them and meet with them weekly. It's a quadruple bypass surgery on their hardened hearts. Maybe you're the one holding on to something today. And this idea of loving tolerance isn't a theory. It's something that you're practicing because you've got to get through something that's going to destroy your marriage or your family. And by showing loving tolerance in a church, isn't it an amazing thing that we can put aside differences that typically divide us in the body of Christ? I'll, I'll talk about that more later. The fifth thing is eager to seek peace. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's the fifth characteristic, this eagerness to seek peace. You see, when we don't seek peace and we want our own way, when we don't want to defer to one another, it causes all kinds of problems. You know what we have here at ABF? We've got a pretty peaceful place. And we're a very diverse group. There are people who have known the Lord for decades. There are people who are brand new in Christ. There are people who are agnostics and atheists who are trying to figure it out, who go to church every Sunday here. They're figuring it out. And it's a safe place to ask hard questions. There's not perfect people. There's forgiven people. And if you're part of this and you've never seen this, don't take what we have here for granted. You're going to think this is a joke, and it's not. But I tell you, every week, and I talk to my wife, and I've talked with Pastor Scott about this, I just pray that as a pastor, I don't do anything to screw this up here as one of your pastors because I'm enjoying this more than anything I've had in 39 years of ministry. Does that mean we got, our, we got some problems? We got some warts? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All churches have that. But you know what I see here? I see people who are gentle. I see humility. I see patience. I see loving tolerance, and I see people who are eager to make the peace here. And so maybe you're hanging on to something today that that isn't true of your experience, and you're, there's somebody that you're just really wrestling with. I'm telling you, let go of it. Let go of it. And so those are the five characteristics of unity that maintain unity. And uh, if we're going to seek peace, I, I just want you to know that it's never easy. It's not an easy thing to seek peace. Romans 12, 18 says, if it is all possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Some of you have seen that in Christian businesses and partnerships where, man, the partners just did not see eye to eye, did they? It caused all kinds of conflict. Even Paul and Barnabas had a dust-up, right? You think, man, those two, are, I mean, they were partners in ministry, and yet they get in a dust-up over 
this little knucklehead John Mark, and we won't go into that story, but even in the end, that gets patched up, and Paul patches it up with John Mark. Um, and so the byproduct of those five things is this idea of unity, and Jesus prays for unity for us in John 17. But unity, write this down, unity isn't uniformity. It's not this artificial agreement because there are legitimate differences. In just a moment, I'll answer those of you who are already formulating the question, yeah, but certainly we stand on certain things and that, that divides us and we shouldn't, we shouldn't compromise this stuff. I, I'm going to get to that. Just hang on. Think about the 12 disciples. What a motley crew those 12 were, right? I mean, think about what he had on his team. He has Simon the Zealot. He's on the far right. He's an ultra white right, probably white Republican, right? And then on the left side, he's got Matt, I'll gouge you the tax collector, right? He's on the political left. They're on the same team, and I'm pretty sure Jesus messes with them, and when they go on road, troop, road trips together, they got a room together. I think that's awesome, right? They're sleeping under the same tree, and they had to figure it out. It's not easy. Unity isn't uniformity. So when we live like that way, it is so contrarian to how culture does it when there's conflict. What does our culture do, say to you when you have a contract or a, a conflict? What does the culture tell us to do? Write it off. Move on. Come on. And it is so easy in our flesh to want to reject and not reconcile because it's painful. It's hard. It's messy. It's not easy. But when we live with unity and in unity, remember, we just maintain it. We can't manufacture it. So let me ask yourself. By the way, when I study in a text like this, it is so convicting. So I don't know if you realize that when I study the Scriptures, it's not like I have binoculars out going, hmm, I see, oh, yeah, oh, that's, oh, wonder if I should use that. No, I can't use that one. You know, no, it's not a binocular message. This is a mirror message. I'm preaching, and I'm looking in the mirror. I'm going, oh, Erwin. Kegel should be preaching this one. He's far more godly than you to deal with this stuff. So you humble or you proud? Just five questions. Humble or proud? Gentle or self-absorbed and pushy? Patient or agitated and intolerant? Tolerant or dogmatic? Seeking peace or being combative? Choice is yours. So... Now we get to those of you who are saying, but, but wait, time out. There are some things we should disagree about, right? Like we got to draw the line. If we're a biblical, God-fearing, convicting kind of church, we should like have this list of stuff that you shouldn't do and list of do's and don'ts and whatnot. Let me just back you up and say two things. Our, our doctrinal statement, our statement of faith, that's the minimum theological glue that says, hey, this is what we believe. We're going to sing about that in a moment. This is what we believe. And this is what are the essentials. And I think Paul anticipated that because he knows that when people are in relationship, I can tell you about this dynamic. When you're in a marital discussion and there's a disagreement about fact or fiction, we'll leave it to you to decide which it is, do you believe that your spouse is the right one and you must always have the wrong idea? No, of course not. I'm right. If she would just get a clue, we'd be on the same page. We're done, right? I say that because I'm a man and I think that I'm normally right. But be married to one who's humble and gentle in all these things. And all of a sudden, it is a piece of just 
Yes, you're right, my dear one. I, I think after further reflection, you did have the proper view on that. And you know what it is, gentlemen? We are just so stubborn. And you say, well, I'm married to a pretty stubborn woman, so don't just throw me under the bush. Could you throw her uh, under the bush <laughs> or the bus, either one, bush or buses? And so the bottom line is we think that these things are divider lines in the sand, and, and Paul's getting to that theologically here now. So where should we be united theologically? What are the essentials? And seven times he uses this word one as an adjective, and he describes it. Look at verse 4, and we'll wrap this up. But we're going to go with pretty rapid fire here. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, and that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Amen and amen. You want to know what to plant your flag on? Plant the things that Paul says are important. And I'm going to give you just a short explanation of those seven things. First of all, there's one body. What kind of body? The church, right? And I've given you the verse here, 1 Corinthians 12, 12, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. So there's one universal body, the body of Christ. And who is in the universal body of Christ? Anybody who's trusted in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. That makes you part of the universal church, all right? By the way, there won't be any denominational partitions in heaven. I think it's going to be pretty unbelievable when the most conservative fundamentalist Baptists are having little wine coolers with Episcopalians up there. I just think that'll be pretty funny. I, I just, I, I really, and the Episcopalians say, I told you, you could have been enjoying this a long time. That's why God says he put me at his banqueting table. You know what? Pretty sure that red meat is going to be okay in heaven, and I don't have to eat gluten-free, vegetarian, vegan, none of that stuff. Steaks are going to be okay, maybe. Or maybe I'll, I'll be changed, we'll be transformed, and I'll like green leafy vegetables. That would be a miracle. Um, secondly, one spirit. What is the one spirit? It's the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 4. And now there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. Someone wrote it better than I could. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, has given us a pledge of our inheritance with a view of the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory, Ephesians 1.14. Get this, the Holy Spirit, He's the divine engagement ring, the pledge as it were, who guarantees that every believer will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19.9. Holy Spirit is the down payment. He's your great helper. He's the one who gives your life that direction because you say, Lord Spirit, inside of me, change me from the inside out. By the way, chapter 4 is on the Holy Spirit. Chapter 5 is on the Son. Chapter, or verse 6, 4. Verse 4, verse 5, verse 6. Holy Spirit, the Son, God the Father. Another little solo reference to the Trinity right here in these three verses. One hope, number three. One hope. Now, what is this hope? Let me describe it in two ways. One hope. It's an eternal hope. Titus 3, 7 an eternal hope, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life, all right? We have this eternal life that God promises us, so our salvation is secure, and it's a blessed hope, Titus 2.13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So our salvation is secure, and our future is secure. Now, churches argue about, well, when is Christ coming back, and 
Is it going to be pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib? We're not getting into that. That's not what we're going to... It won't matter. He's coming back someday. Now, there is some divisions among your pastors here. I'm a pre-trib guy. I've told you that. And I'm personally thinking you should kind of align with me because we're going first, you know? Well, you suckers want to stay around for three and a half years, then hang with Pastor Scott. He's the mid-tribber. And then if you are really a gluttons for punishment, just go for post-trib because you're going for all seven bad years. Oh, boy. Pity you guys. Um, but what, what happens if we went based on our theological view? So the... Hey! Oh, sorry, you guys. Should have sided with... No. See, and, and we kind of laugh about that, but there are things like that that really, come on, are we really going to fight over this? I mean, we're fighting over that. Let's, if we're going to defend something, let's defend these things. Let's defend the gospel. Let's defend the gospel. And so, we have one hope, eternal and blessed. Then D, one Lord. Who's our Lord? It's Jesus Christ, our Savior. Romans 10, 12. Romans 10, 12. I think I might have had a different verse on there. So scratch out 1 Corinthians 12, 5. Romans 10, 12. For the same Lord is Lord over all, abounding in riches for all who call upon Him. Acts 4, 12. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which men must be saved. Who is that? Jesus. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right? One Lord. That's Jesus Christ. This past week, um, I took uh, uh, some guys to see the case for Christ. And uh, uh, one's an agnostic, one's an atheist. We play racquetball together. And, and then afterwards, we went to Hugo's because, remember, like, he's vegan, and, like, I had to eat vegan for a week so he'd come to church once, all that stuff. So we so went to Hugo's because there's a vegan, vegetarian menu, and there's red meat. And um, we talked for, like, three hours. But fundamentally, as I talk to my friends, this is an eight-year process we've been talking about this stuff. Fundamentally, they do not believe that Jesus is Lord. They don't believe that He's God. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe that there could be a God that intervenes in the supernatural. And then you throw in a little evolution and a bunch of misunderstanding, and it's easy to see why they're anti this. And I had a bunch of people praying... And uh, I didn't have any big hope that there would be a conversion at that, um, that, that, that dinner. But I did have this. I got to tell Emery and George. I said to them, I said, you know, um, I hope you understand something. I'm not here to try to win an argument. I'm not here to defend the Christian faith. And then I told them the story of Penn Jillette who's an atheist, who after a show talked about a Christian who came up to talk to him after a show, and he said, this guy was a really good guy, and he was very complimentary about the show, and, and if you ever watch Pendulette and those little you know, podcasts, he's always fiddling with his hair and talking, and, and um, he said, you know, uh, Pendulette says this as an atheist, says, atheist, he says, you know, I've always believed in, in uh, proselytizing. Interesting thought for an atheist. He goes, I always believe that if you believe in the pendulette, his word says this. He says, if you believe that Jesus cried on the cross and paid for the penalty of your sins, then if by receiving him you get the free gift of eternal life and you have a chance to go to heaven, and then these words are chilling. He says, how much do you have to hate someone not to tell them about that good news? 
It's like if a truck, and he continues, he goes, it's like a, a truck is barreling down upon you. How much do I have to hate you that if I know with certainty that if you step into that street, you're going to be smashed by that truck, that I don't reach out and grab you and pull you back? And so if you are a Christian, you should tell others about that. And then he goes on to say, but, you know, Christianity has caused so many problems, and he goes off on this other rant. And I said to Emory and George, I said, it's because of that fact. You're my friends. And guys don't really use the word like love. Like that would just be weird. Like, I love you guys. I'm going to beat your pants and rack all, but I love you. I said, but it's because of those facts, guys. I don't want to win an argument. But I do believe Jesus is going to make a difference. And they didn't buy it. It's, I mean, this is a long-term deal. But they heard it. And Emory, in particular, and I talked to him on Monday or on the, uh, a day later, I said, I said, tell me something. You believed at one time, and you've now just pulled away, and you reject everything. What happened? It was when I started asking questions that are not answerable. And so I got him this far. There's 20 questions he says he has, and he's going to categorize them in categories. And when this forum group comes together and... Bill Berry and I put together a group of agnostics and atheists who want to ask genuine questions. We're going to try to address those questions. But for some of us, this idea of Jesus being the only way, we buy it. There's some of you who are still trying to figure that out, and it's okay because the fifth thing we believe in here is one faith based on grace, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. One faith based on grace. By the way, always don't lead to heaven. One way leads to heaven, and that's through the person of Jesus Christ. Sixth, one baptism. That baptism is not, we're not talking about water baptism. We're not stop sprinkling. We're not talking about pouring. We're talking about one baptism, baptism into the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit, we're all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or frees, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. And that baptism, that spiritual baptism, happens when you trust Christ and you're placed into the larger body of Christ. I don't think this refers specifically to the act of baptism, water baptism or immersion. People can argue about that. We believe in believer's baptism. When you become a Christ follower, you get baptized, saying this is my public demonstration of my personal faith. Uh, Monica did that just a few weeks ago. She's a relatively new believer and says, I'm in. Uh, so what's next? Well, I should get baptized. Okay. Well, we do that in the summer. She goes, I don't really want to wait till the summer. Can we do that a little sooner? Now, that's an exactly, but it sounds good, doesn't it? Uh, she's in the second row. But the bottom line is she says, I want to I tell people I, I'm a Christ follower now, right? And Josh baptized her. And so there's one baptism. And when you accept Christ, you're part of this body of Christ. And then lastly, there's one God. Who is that God? He's the eternal Father, Deuteronomy 6.4. The Lord our God is one. And so I'll close with this. We are God-created, God-loved, God-saved, God-fathered, God-controlled, God-sustained, God-filled, and God-blessed. We are one people under one sovereign overall, omnipotent through all, and omnipresent in all, God. That's the God that we serve. And that, my friend, is what we put our flag on today. And so as we talk about unity, we're talking about, yeah, these are these things that God has to develop in you. 
gentleness and patience and, and loving forbearance and seeking peace. But when it comes right down to it, these seven things, that's where I'm going to plant my flag. I'm going to plant my flag on the gospel because all seven of them reflect the gospel. And so as we close today, I realize that it's a tale of two parts of a message. The first half are these five characteristics that we should have evidence, and I see so much in you in the church. That's what will maintain the unity. But if ultimately the conditions of unity theologically come from these seven one statements, one Father, one God, one salvation, one Lord, and that's what we unite on. Amen? Amen. We're going to sing about that. But as in every service, I just want you to know that if today you are wrestling with something that's been said, there's something that's resonating in your heart that you say, I've got to talk to someone. We'll be right here and we'll talk. And we'll pray. But let's continue to worship God as we worship the unity we have in Christ right now. There's a lot of things to believe in that we stake our lives on. But I can tell you the one thing that is unchanging is God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, who can make a difference in your life today. Amen. Have a great week.